snarky line in there somewhere about, uh, you know, that Alan Dulles never made the mistake of believing his own propaganda, whereas Dulles really kind of was a, you know, I make this distinction between like cynical and naive, you know, that John Foster Dulles was a, you know, naive anti-communist. He really did think that Nasser was a communist, even though Nasser is like hanging communism, communists and suppressing and hanging communists in, in Syria and, and, you know, sort of uh, actively fighting communism in the area. So whereas uh, John Foster Dulles, I see him as like naively believing this sort of Cold War, there's a communist under every bed, whereas Alan Dulles knows that's just rhetoric and that the real the reality of covert operations and whatnot is a little bit more intricate and you can't have that sort of Manichaean black and white, you know, simplified vision of the world, but it doesn't map on. And that really becomes clear. Iraq is the one place like, you know, the Bruce Lovett in these places, they're saying like they they ruined the analysis of Iraq so much by seeing Nasser you know, by seeing Nasser as the one that's behind the 1958 coup and behind Nasser as the Soviet Union, that just doesn't map on to reality, right? Very quickly, you know, the, the Iraq aligns with the Soviet Union, the communists against Nasser. And so their mental map for making sense of the politics of the region just really doesn't make any sense. This sort of seeing everything through the lens of, of anti-communism just misses so much of the regional sort of dynamics and uh, John Foster Dulles never, I don't think he ever was able to kind of come to a more nuanced or sophisticated analysis of what was driving events in the region. Right. He, he had, he, he was a bit of a crank in his own particular way, but I think he was useful to people, uh, people at Sullivan and Cromwell and other places uh, that took advantage of his services. Why do you think that Nasser, Nasser was so was his, was his, the source of his beef with the communists, was it because the communists were so, bitterly and doctrinally opposed to nationalism or what was it because he his policies were more along i mean they were pretty nationalist slash socialist but i don't mean that in a nationalist socialist way but you understand what i'm saying they were like he was a nationalist he wanted to advance the the arab people as a group together and he often wanted to make into to bring into the public domain things like the suez canal and oil and so on so what so why why the bitterness towards the communists uh, and how was he able to, even with that, somehow also be okay with working with the Soviet Union at times? Yeah, so I think he adopts in a kind of dramatic um, move in 1962, he adopts Arab socialism and he begins to, you know, basically realizes that you that you have to. So, he, uh, um, you know, he can't move forward with his developmental plans or his geopolitical ambitions or anything else um, without sort of aligning himself with the Soviet Union and the left. So I think he does move to the left and towards the Soviets over the course of the 1960s. Um, but initially, I don't know that it's like ideological an animus, but I think the really useful way of kind of analyzing uh, Arab politics in the 1930s, 40s, 50s is this kind of like three-part analysis that comes from like Hanabatatu, for instance, and, and elsewhere, that basically there are three big forces in the region at the time. You have the communists who envision uh, Thaura, a revolution from below, social mobilization of workers and peasants. And then you have the, the Ba'ath Party, which envisions Inkilab or a, a coup, which is kind of like a top-down modernization uh, by infiltrating the military. And then you have um, in the middle of the, you know, in the, in the so the, both are anti, both are anti-imperialist and anti-Zionist. Both are kind of, so on that sense would be considered left movements. But, uh, you know, one is more vanguard oriented, the Ba'ath being like top down, you know, elitist and the, so and the communist being bottom up. So you have these two kind of uh, rival um, visions of how to kick the imperial powers out of the region. 
And then in the middle, you have what are called the free officers. And they are ideal, they're military men, they're modernizers, they're pragmatic. And they are mostly interested in, you know, development um, and anti-imperialism, but they kind of fluctuate between the two poles. And so I don't really see uh, Nasser's early kind of like, he's just trying to contain, um, you know, the most salient uh, force to his left or rivals to power. The, there was for a brief moment, there's the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, they, uh, they come back obviously in the 70s and 80s or whatnot. Um, so I, maybe I should put one more factor, you know, one more force of, of uh, but so he's basically suppressing all, um, you know, bourgeois, neo-colonialists, um, you know, uh, the uh, eventually he's going to kind of get close to the Ba'ath, but he's putting down the communists, he's putting down um, the Muslim Brotherhood. He really goes hard after the Muslim Brotherhood, very, you know, dedicated to secularism and, and sort of ban, so he bans all opposition political parties. Uh, mostly because under the monarchy, under the Egyptian monarchy, uh, the parliament and the um, political parties were the vehicles by which the British imperial interests would manipulate outcomes in Iraq. And so he's basically doing away with the corruption of, of parliamentary rule and trying to do things uh, more directly. And so I don't think it's necessarily an ideological anti-communism that's driving him to uh, um, marginalize and I don't want to exaggerate the extent of his, you know, he did hang a few prominent communists, um, but uh, it's not anything like what the Ba'ath did in Iraq in 1963, for example. It's not that bloodthirsty, but he's just trying to consolidate power for himself and his party um, for fear that, you know, the if the communists come to power, then that could invite, you know, U.S. or Soviet intervention or, you know, just trying to keep a control of things for himself. So I think he's trying to walk a fine line initially between like, uh, uh, you know, um, the both on the one side and the communists on another. And then eventually, like all third world nationalists find, is that there is no third way, right? I mean, it's either you side with the United States or the Soviets. There's nowhere else to go. You know, there's no... And so I think eventually, you know, uh, in the face of Yemen, you know, there's a Yemeni war that breaks out in 1962 and the United States is supporting one side um, and he comes out on the other. So eventually, I think he comes around and, and becomes... a. Uh, um, he becomes something of a protagonist later in my book, as far as being a, a big sort of ideological force towards nationalization. But in the initial phase, you know, as everybody's trying to stabilize their positions and jockey for positions, there's a bit of a contest for power between Nasser and the, and the communists. So how do you think about the Muslim Brotherhood in this time period? Because the Muslim Brotherhood was, uh, you know, they were created by Hassan al-Banna, right, in the 20s. And there was the Suez Canal Company gave him a, a grant to build the first, like, headquarters. Uh, and, and, they see, and they were protect. They, they worked in the inauguration or the coronation, I guess, <laughs> of uh, King, um, what was the name of that, that, troll of a of a the Brit the Farouk, right? Was that the guy's mm -hmm. name? King Farouk. Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. So the Muslim Brotherhood uh provided security for him and they seem to be like uh you know like you go back to Al Afghani or whatever, the original traveling Islamist who was probably an atheist, uh, but he was like the, had this idea of political Islam. I mean uh how did how did the did the Muslim Brotherhood weigh in on what uh 
Nasser was trying to do because he, you know, he bans them. The CIA was working with them, working with Saeed Ramadan. They, they used him, the Muslim brother, to try to assassinate the Brits and the probably the CIA too, from what I've read. Tried to use the Muslim brother to assassinate Nasser. They tried to use they used Muslims to try to assassinate Sukarno way over there. I mean, these guys were are, are often dupes of you know of of imperialist powers like the the probably the Muslim world, just like other people, would rather live in a modern, technologically, you know, have the tools of technology improving people's lives and so on. Like they probably would not, by their own devices, it really like this backward idea of religion. But there it is. How does the Muslim Brotherhood uh, impact, you know, Nasser and, and, and the, the politics of the region in this time? Yeah, uh, well, maybe I should back up and say that really Nasser comes to power because of the war between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Egyptian monarchy, that it was the Egyptian, it was the Muslim Brotherhood that was the leading force for, you know, in Hassan al-Banna's day of, you know, social provision, providing the needs, healthcare, education, you know, garbage removal, just providing for the needs that the the Egyptian monarchy was not responding to, but also was the most uh, strident anti-Zionist, sending like a... um, you know, partisans to fight the Palestine, the war in Palestine in 1948, and the strongest force of opposition calling for the overthrow of the monarchy and kicking out the British and the, the Muslim Brotherhood. And they, they established in 1948 or 1949 their secret apparatus, which is engaged in assassinations of the, uh, of the, the monarchy figures. And it's this, uh, basically, uh, in 1952, the, the whole thing kind of is falling, you know, 1951, 1952, you're getting a um, really chaotic situation developing as the Muslim Brotherhood is being suppressed by the Egyptian monarchy, and there's a state of exception, disorder, all kinds of stuff going on. And so it's the war between um, the monarchy and the Muslim Brotherhood that allows uh, the free officers to emerge and and kind of keep a a lid on things or to kind of um, restore a sense of order. And um, and so when the the Egyptian... uh, uh, Initial coup happens in July of 1952 when Nasser comes to power, and he's he's actually the the power behind the throne, but Naguib is the initially the figurehead, and um, in the first two years of the Egyptian Revolution, and um, and initially, you know, Said Qutb and uh, uh, who had recently returned from from edu- from his education as you know key theorist of Islamic Revolution had recently returned from his sojourn in the United States, and he initially. Uh, endorses and supports the Free Officers Revolution and sees it as progressive and wants to uh, is is supportive of it, but very quickly there is a uh, split between Nasser and Kutub and the and the uh, the brothers over the direction of the revolution. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire.